of your own justice, of the justice of God. And thank you so much that you died for our sins, for all our wickedness, for all of our vileness, so that anyone, anyone who wants can come to the well of life and drink freely from you, Jesus. You've made a way for anyone to have hope in you if they just believe and come. And we thank you for your heart that is so quick to grab a hold of any sinner who sees you and desires salvation. We thank you so much that you are not far from us, but you are so near to us, Lord, to anyone who calls upon you with a true heart. We pray that you would prepare our hearts now to hear more from, from your word and just to be affected by the gospel message that uh, Patrick is bringing this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Luke. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I just want to say, uh, echoing what our brother Luke said and what Sam said, we love you guys. We miss you. We are longing for the day that we all get to be back together. And, and I wish that you could be here, uh, not only so that we could be together, but I wish you could be here to, to hear what this room sounds like. Um, we don't have any speakers or monitors happening. It's all just in our earbuds. So uh, when I have my earbuds in, I, I don't hear anything but just the mix of what's going on. But when I take them out to get ready to preach, um, as, as, as I did at the end of the song, uh, I can just hear. And so uh, Kelly's singing, Luke's singing. I can hear Michaela singing in the back. Uh, it's so small because there's so few of us, and yet it's such a beautiful thing uh, with all of the, the noise stripped away and just voices raised uh, to the heavens in praise of our great God. That's why we gather. And what a blessing it is to be able to gather in small groups, in our home groups. It has been such a blessing. This, uh, if we can't meet together, uh, this is the next best thing. And it has been amazing because there's been discussion immediately after the, the service, that really important time to not let the seed of God's word uh, just be taken away uh, or just fall away from the soil. That's such an important time. And so if you're not involved in a small group, I would just encourage you to get plugged into one. Um, even if you're concerned about health and things like that, some of the groups are meeting outside. Some of the groups are requiring masks. So ask around so that you, we would, we would do whatever it takes so that you could feel comfortable to be there. And so we want to make sure that we can do that with everybody in our church. I know that there are some of you that, that just want to stay home and don't want to come back yet, and that's totally fine. But if you're just kind of thinking about it and wondering about when could I get back, these small groups would be a great time for you to jump back in. So, well, we miss you. We miss you and we love you. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We are going to be finishing out this chapter this morning. I don't know if you've ever been to an escape room. I don't know if you've ever done one of those things. They can be super fun. They can be super annoying as well. The idea of an escape room is you basically pay somebody money to lock you into a room with puzzles and riddles to try and get your way out. You usually get locked in there with a, a group of people, and maybe there's rooms within rooms, and, and so there's uh, little messages that kind of describe how you're supposed to get uh, through your objective and, and how you're supposed to get out of the room. You usually have a time limit of uh, about an hour, and the goal is to try and uh, get out as fast as you possibly can. As I was thinking about escape rooms, I was thinking about 2020, this year feels like an escape room, and we're just trying as best as we can to get out as fast as we can, and uh, we're all losing right now. Everybody's losing, uh, but hopefully one day soon we'll get out of this year and move on. One of the things that helps you in escape rooms uh, are signs. You'll see signs posted around uh, on the walls, and the signs never mean what they look like they're meaning, right? You have to think outside the box. You have to figure out there's some hidden message within this sign, and there's signs posted all over the place, and you, you kind of look at everything, but those signs help direct you and guide you in trying to figure out how to get out of the room. There is something in the New Testament that Jesus refers to. He speaks of Jonah by name more than any other Old Testament prophet by name, and he also speaks specifically of something called the sign of Jonah. The context of Jesus using that phrase, the, the phrase, the sign of Jonah, uh, the context of that is 
um, after many years of public ministry, it's about halfway into his public ministry, he's been doing miracles, he has been gathering crowds around him, he's been teaching, the Pharisees are not happy with him. And then you remember uh, around Matthew chapter 11, he does this insanely messianic miracle. And in this uh, insanely messianic miracle, it was, it was prophesied that the Messiah who was going to come was going to do all these different miracles. And Jesus does all of those miracles in one specific person that was having a really rough day. He heals all of those infirmities, casts out demons, heals the man of all of his sicknesses and all of his diseases. And the crowds say, well, this guy sure looks like the Messiah. He did what only the Messiah was prophesied to do. So he must be the Messiah, right? They turn to the Pharisees who they have been following religiously. And the Pharisees gather together, they huddle. And you remember, they say, he did these miracles by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub. That's how he did these miracles. He didn't do it by the power of God. He is not God, but he's possessed by the devil. Now, Jesus does a number of things at that point. He logically reasons with them. That's impossible. A house divided against itself cannot stand. All these different things that he describes to them. This is impossible. This doesn't make sense. But then he says to them, I'm going to start speaking in parables. I'm going to withhold the truth from you. I'm going to give it to those who have ears to hear. And then the Pharisees say, well, fine. Before you do that, tell us plainly that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and give us a sign so that we may believe that you are who you claim you are. It is in that context that Jesus says, no further sign will be given to you, but the sign of Jonah. Now, it's interesting because Jesus did many more miracles over the course of his public ministry. He did many more miracles. He healed people. He taught people. He did many other signs. But he tells the Pharisees, you're going to get one more sign. No other sign is going to be given to you. I've already done enough miracles for you to see and to understand and to believe. But I'm going to give you one more sign. And it's the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah, Jesus says this, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Matthew records Jesus explicitly saying that the sign of Jonah has to do with his death. Dying, being buried in a tomb for three days and three nights. We're going to talk about that idiom, that kind of phrase that Hebrews would use. But that's in Matthew explicitly referring to Jesus' death. Luke chapter 11, the parallel passage says that the sign of Jonah is not just the sign of the death of Jesus, but the life that Jonah lived to go to the Ninevites and proclaim the gospel to a pagan people and everything involved in his life. So yes, the sign of Jonah has to do with Jesus' death, but it also has to do with something about his life and what he did on our behalf through his living. Jonah is 800 years before Jesus, but Jesus says, you will get one more sign and it's the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? What are we to see in the account of Jonah that would point us so explicitly, so specifically, so directly to Jesus and so directly to the gospel? And brothers and sisters, I don't think that we have to look at the sign within the sign and we have to find hidden meanings. We have to find hidden messages. I don't think we have to do a lot of work to to kind of think outside the box on this like we would if we were all in an escape room together staring at a sign. I think this sign, the sign of Jonah, as we're going to see this morning, is a very clear sign. And it's a sign that's going to lead us straight to the gospel. It's a sign that's going to give us three realities of what conversion looks like. And it's a sign that's going to challenge our hearts this morning. It's going to examine our hearts this morning. And I just want to plead with you. We're going to be taking communion together this morning. And this is a time to reflect. This is a time to think about the cross. And so this sermon sets us up perfectly for that. But if you're, if you're watching and you don't know where you stand with the Lord, or, or maybe you think that you're right with the Lord, but as you listen to what is going to go on in these verses, you're going to hear a different reality of what conversion looks like and what the sign of Jonah truly is. I just want to plead with you to ask God to open your eyes this morning, that God in his kindness would show you what the gospel truly is, and that all of us would bow the knee to the gospel. Let's read these verses together. And then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. The sailors said to Jonah, 
what should we do to you so that the sea may be, become calm for us? Because the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord, and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Father, I have a great burden on my heart that everyone who is listening to this message would be saved. God, I pray that the message of the gospel would be so clear, so compelling, so compassionate that people would hear it, maybe who have heard it so many times before, but with new ears, with new hearts, with a new understanding. God, I pray that you would, would save. Pray that you would bring people to an end of themselves, that they would stop relying on themselves, that they would turn and trust in you, that they would see what they're trusting in when they trust in you. But God, all that I ask is impossible for me to accomplish, for me to do. Even the preaching of your word cannot be done rightly if it is not empowered by your spirit. And so I pray, Father, that you would use a broken vessel to bring about an unbelievable awakening of your love for us. Create new affections in our hearts. God, may we have done with lesser things. May we hear the gospel this morning and may it compel us to change the direction of our lives and stop living for the things of this world and start living for the gospel to go forth from our lips and from our lives, in our communities, in our households, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. There's no other reason that we've been left here on earth but to share Christ. And so may we do so with boldness, with clarity, with compassion, with conviction, compelling people to turn to Christ. May we preach the gospel even to ourselves as we hear the gospel preached, and Jesus, may you be exalted and magnified. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our treasure forevermore. Amen. This morning, we're going to see three realities of conversion. Three realities of conversion. But I want to save those three realities to the end. I want to walk through the narrative. And I just want to ask you to start looking through these words, through these sentences, through the narrative and see if you can see those three realities of conversion as we go through. So let's begin in verse 11. We left off last week with Jonah in the boat. There's a great storm. The lot has been cast. It has fallen on him. And he finally owned up to the fact that he was running away from the Lord. That's the end of verse 10. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So, verse 11, the sailors, knowing that about Jonah... Since he's the cause of the storm, they reason he's also the key to quieting it. They ask him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? Jonah is the problem, but he's also the solution to the problem. He knows how Yahweh works, and so the sailors turn to him for help. And they turn to him specifically because, end of verse 11, the sea is becoming increasingly stormy. So it's just getting worse. The storm is going to get worse and worse over the course of this chapter. Jonah says, pick me up, verse 12, throw me into the sea. 
Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. They say, we don't know what to do. What should we do to you? And he says, throw me into the sea. What do you make of Jonah's response? What do you make of Jonah's answer? Jonah submits himself to a watery grave, literally lost at sea, while metaphorically being lost at sea as well. What's Jonah doing here? What's the purpose of this answer? Some would say this is a repentance. I don't think this is repentance at all. It doesn't have any language here of repentance. There's no action here of repentance. I believe that if Jonah were truly repentant, he would have said, I know what to do. Turn this boat around, get us back to Joppa so that I can go to Nineveh. I repent. I've been running in the opposite direction. I turn around, send me back in the right direction. That's the way that we can survive. That's what repentance would look like. And I like to believe that if Jonah had said that, the, the, the storm would have instantly been destroyed. The ship would have turned around and God would have sent a wind like never before to get that boat back to Joppa as fast as possible. But that's not what Jonah does. Remember, Jonah knows if Nineveh is spared, they were going to be used as that kingdom to come in and destroy the northern kingdom. So if, if Nineveh is spared then they're going to not spare Israel. So if Jonah dies, if the messenger that's supposed to take that gospel message to Nineveh dies, then that gospel message doesn't go. Nineveh won't be spared. Nineveh will be destroyed. And so Israel will not be destroyed. Jonah believes he's more loving than God. If I spare uh, Nineveh, then Israel won't be spared. So if I destroy Nineveh or allow them to be destroyed, then I spare my own countrymen. We talked about all the reasons why he decided to run away from God. Explicitly, he knows that God's going to save Nineveh, as told in chapter 4. But he says here, throw me into the sea, not turn me around and send me to Nineveh. No repentance here. He says, in effect, I'd rather die than obey God. That's not repentance. Kill me because that's a better option than me having to do what God has told me to do. Throw me overboard. There's great despair when you go against God's directions. Maybe he's at his wit's end. Maybe he just doesn't know what to do anymore, and he thinks this is the only way out. Where there's no obedience to God, there's no assurance as to who you are. You don't know why you're made. You don't know why you're on the earth. So what's the point of life anyway? His defiance is not neutral. Defiance never stays neutral. It puts him in the path of destruction, literally, where he is saying, kill me. I would like to die. We talked about this last week, that sin makes us senseless. Here is Jonah so thoroughly senseless that he says, death is a better option to me than obedience. He won't win in his fight against God. God's ultimately going to win. Maybe, here's another option. Maybe Jonah's also saying, uh, I deserve death anyway. Maybe let's give him a little credit. Maybe he thinks I deserve death anyway. Just kill me now. Maybe that's why. It doesn't explicitly tell us, but we know this isn't genuine repentance. Maybe he looks around at the sailors in fear and fright, terrifying peril, and he realizes you're going to die because of me, so let me die for you instead. Maybe he's saying that. We don't know. But either way, Jonah's doing the exact opposite of what Jesus did. When Jesus was on the earth, Jesus would rather obey his father than live. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd rather obey you and thus die than live and disobey you. Jesus, in towering majesty and grace, does the exact opposite of what Jonah's going to do here. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. The men hear that. They were the ones that asked him that. What should we do? Verse 13, they say, that's a bad idea. We're not doing that. So they rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Why didn't they throw Jonah overboard? Well, they knew he was a prophet. They figured getting, or killing God's prophet would get them killed, so they didn't want to do that. Bottom line is they think that they have their own solution to get out of this mess. They trust in their oars, they trust in their boat, they trust in their own strength and their own knowledge, but none of that's going to work. 
So, verse 14, they call on the Lord. They pray to Yahweh. The irony here is so amazing. Pagans are praying when God's prophet will not. Pagans are pleading with God, desiring to do exactly whatever God tells them to do. They just don't know what it is. Whereas Jonah knows exactly what God wants him to do, but he doesn't want to do it. So they pray and they plead with the Lord. We pray earnestly, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us because you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they pray. They pick Jonah up. They throw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Immediately, the sea is quieted and calm. Then, verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Remember, the sailors were afraid of the storm. Then they were afraid when, uh, even more afraid when Jonah told them why the storm had happened. Then they were even more afraid now that they know as they've launched Jonah over the side of the boat, now they know that God has truly answered their prayers. They're even more afraid. This is submissive fear on the part of the sailors. They were afraid of the storm. They were afraid with God being angry with them. But now the greatest fear that they have is that God has applied grace to their situation. They know that they are undeserving of God's love and grace. And so they have a greater fear than ever before. It says that they made vows. In the Hebrew, it's the same word used twice. They vowed vows or they swore swears. This is so beautiful for us to see the timing of when they did this. This is not a a foxhole conversion, as it were. Um, Many people will say, Lord, just get me out of this. And then God saves them. And then they'll decide to follow him or not. That's not what happens here. The Lord saved them. Then the men feared God and they offer sacrifices and they make vows. This isn't foxhole conversion. This is a declaration that I want to serve God even after I've been saved, after the fact. Not in order to get something from God, but because God's already given me grace. They're not asking, they're not vowing these vows to God in order to be delivered from the storm. They're vowing these vows because God already delivered them from the storm. They were not seeking God for what he could do for them, but simply for the greatness and kindness of who he himself is. And that's the beginning of true faith. Jonah ran away, remember, because he doesn't desire that pagans, that non-Jewish people would hear the gospel and be saved. And yet here are pagan sailors. I wonder if any of these sailors belong to Nineveh. I wonder if any of them are Assyrians. They hear the gospel, they're saved. They understand, without even hearing it from Jonah, they understand that God in his grace has saved them and spared them. Jonah thinks that he can successfully defy God, but this tells us no. If Jonah says, I don't want pagans to be saved, and God says, I want them to be saved, God's going to get them saved despite Jonah's refusal. Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of pagans. Then, verse 17, as soon as Jonah is thrown over, the Lord appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah. We'll talk about this verse in more detail next week, Lord willing. But Jonah is swallowed by a fish, and Jonah is in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah says, throw me overboard and kill me now. And as soon as Jonah hits the water, the God whom Jonah does not fully even trust miraculously saves Jonah. And that's the end of chapter one. So, did you catch the signs that are there inherent in this narrative? Did you catch realities of grace-motivated conversion? Let me give you three. There's many in here, but let me give you three realities of conversion as seen in this narrative. The first one's very simple. If you want to be converted, you must turn from self-effort. You must turn from self-effort. Remember the sailors in verse 11 asked Jonah, what should we do? Jonah tells them in verse 12, but verse 13 begins with the word, however. They've been given clear instructions. This is how you will be saved. However, they take up their oars and they start trying to row out of it. They trust in themselves 
rather than calling on God for help, they try to row out. Their go-to response is not to submit, but to struggle in their own efforts. And this is the basic desire of every human heart. We believe we can do it on our own. We believe we don't need anybody else's help. So therefore, to, to tell somebody in the gospel message that they are unable in themselves to save themselves, that's why that message is so offensive. That's why the gospel is so offensive. That's why so many people want to add to the gospel. Of course, Jesus died on the cross. That's historical fact. And yes, we believe that he died so that we could be saved. Absolutely, he cleanses our sins. Absolutely does things that we could not do for ourselves. But every human heart says, yeah, but there's something that I can do for myself. There's something I can do to save myself. I can be good enough. I'll stop being so bad. Look at my life, Lord. Look at how awesome I am now. This is every cult and false religion. This is every religion other than Christianity. We've had so many experiences talking to other members of other religions. And if you ask them, hey, just wondering, I'd love to know more about your religion. If you were to die tonight and stand before your God and your God were to ask you, why should you get into heaven? What would your answer be? What assurance do you have that you're going to make it into heaven. Number one response is a laughter, and then I don't have any assurance that I'm going to go to heaven. Most responses given when we ask any other religion, how can you be assured you're going to go to heaven? Most people say, oh, you can't be assured. I'm not assured. I have no assurance. We've even discussed that when we were looking at the Trinity, looking at Islam, and looking at how you can't have any assurance. But the second answer that is most often given if you were to ask any religious leader or any religious member, any, any false religion out there, any cult out there, you ask the member, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven or to paradise or to wherever your good place is? And their answer will be something to the effect of because I've done something to earn it. Now, they rarely will say earn. My wife and I just had a conversation with somebody uh, who was a uh, Mormon who said, I love people. That's why I should get into heaven. I love people. And my next question was, that's great. And I'm, I'm glad that you love people. And I want to love people too. Can I just ask, I'm wondering, what's the standard of love? Like how loving do you have to be? Can you be 50% loving? Do you have to be 100% loving? What's the standard of love? And it was just try your best. So maybe you never love anybody, but you tried. Will God accept that? And the answer was God knows our hearts. He knows we're trying. And so I said, just, just to be clear, when you stand before God and God says, why shall I let you into heaven? Your answer is going to be because I tried my best to love people. That's self-effort. That's self-effort. And every religion says you have to give something to get to God. You have to do something to get to God. That's not the gospel. And here... In an illustrative way, the sailors are saying, you know what, God has given us instructions through his prophet, but we think we know a better way. Maybe God will just know that I tried hard. Conversion involves laying down your oars. Conversion involves no longer rowing. Conversion says, if I try to fight against the waves, I'm going to die. And though it feels like I'm going to die if I let my, my oars go, that's the only way I can be saved. Conversion says I give up. I'm not good enough to earn. I'm not good enough to deserve. Even after God saves me, I'm not good enough to keep that salvation on my own. I still need his help. We see the first reality of conversion is that we must turn from self-effort. The second reality that we've seen here is we must trust in Jesus' substitution. The second reality of conversion that we see in these verses is we must trust in Jesus' substitution. So turn from self-effort, then trust in Jesus' substitution. What do I mean by substitution? This is the truest pattern of love in the world. Substituting what, what I need for what you need, putting my needs into your needs, and working on your behalf. True love meets the needs of the loved one, no matter what the costs would be to themselves. And all life-changing love is some form of substitution. Think about parenting, for example. Children need you 
as a parent to read to them over and 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 over again. You're just constantly reading to them. But if you don't read to them and you don't engage with them and you don't play with them and you don't hang out with them, then that stunts their social maturity, that stunts their intellectual maturity, that stunts all of those different areas of growth that they need in order to live into adulthood and live well in society. This obviously entails a lot of sacrifice. Parents disrupt their lives for years to substitute what they could be doing to live for their children, to nurture them, to raise them. But if they didn't do that, kids would grow up with all sorts of problems. They will anyway, but they would grow up with even greater problems. It's either us or them. We lose so much of our freedom so that they can become free. We see this in any relationship where forgiveness is offered. Substitution says, though you broke something of mine, I will pay for it. That's forgiveness. You did something wrong that offended me, but I'm not going to demand that you make it right. I take that burden away from you. If they want to make it right, they can do that to fight for reconciliation. But forgiveness says, I'll pay the price. My wife likes to use the illustration of a broken window. If somebody breaks a window in our house and they say, whoops, I'm so sorry, and we say, that's okay, we forgive you, that's great, but there's still a broken window. And somebody has to pay that cost, and we usually end up paying that cost. We see this clearly, this aspect of substitution in the covenant of marriage where you are literally saying I will live my life for you I will I will die to myself to live for your desires what what do you want this is when a marriage is just beautiful when the husband and the wife wake up in the morning and they say I don't care what I want I care what you want tell me what you want I want to do what you want and if both sides are 100% doing that. Marriage isn't a 50-50. That's not substitution. Marriage is just saying, I wake up in the morning and die to myself. And I live for my spouse. Obviously, we see this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see substitution all over the place, but the most radical, the most, uh, the, the highest form of substitution that we see anywhere in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is part of the sign of Jonah that Jesus refers to in Luke and in Matthew. There's obviously clear differences between what Jesus does and what Jonah does. Jonah's cast into the sea and into death for his own sins. Jesus never sinned. Jonah only came near to death. He didn't actually die. Jesus actually died. But the reality is the substitution is still there. I will die in place of someone else. Jesus said explicitly in Mark 10, 45, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. For, that word for, is a preposition of substitution. I'm giving myself in your place. I'm doing something on your behalf. When Jonah is thrown into the sea, the storm stops. The storm, as an expression of God's anger towards sin and sinners, is turned aside Jonah satisfies God's wrath. Jonah satisfies God's anger. He says, I'll take it all upon me so that sailors, you don't have to experience it. This is something in the Bible that we call propitiation. Propitiation is a word that means a satisfaction of wrath or a punishment being completely paid or to regain and win favor from God or to make an appeal to God so that he won't be angry with you anymore. This is propitiation. This is why 1 John says that Jesus is our propitiation. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins. John's speaking about Jews in his community, not only Jewish people's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. No matter what ethnic group you're in, you're all brought in through the blood of Jesus if you trust in him. If you trust in self-effort, then you will, rework, you will work to regain favor. If you trust in what you can do, you will try to be your own propitiation. But in the Bible, it's clear that Jesus alone is our propitiation. Propitiation is a stopping up of the dam of God's wrath. It's about to break through onto us and somebody stops it up. And even more than that, propitiation isn't just stopping up the dam. It's diverting the dam. It's, it's channeling it away so that it flows upon somebody else. Let me give you just quickly a recipe for propitiation. I heard this from 
a pastor buddy of mine, and I loved it, a, a recipe for propitiation, okay? This is how one comes to a place where they can be converted, where they can be saved. Number one, for propitiation to happen, you need imputation. Imputation is crediting into somebody else's account what you have. So imputing something to somebody else. If I write a check to Buddy and I give that check to Buddy, I have imputed money to Buddy's account. I've credited him with something that I had. I've given it to him. That's imputation. In this story, in this narrative, Jonah's sins are being imputed to the sailors. They're being given to the sailors. The sailors are being treated as if they had sinned Jonah's sin, even though they didn't. They're in a boat running away from God, as it were, even though that wasn't their expressed intent. Even more specific to the point, that's more of an illustration from this narrative, but more specifically to the point, biblically, the Bible says that Adam's sin is imputed to you and to me. Adam and Eve, when they fell in the garden, when they chose to disobey God, that sin now is passed down to you and to me. Therefore, we're born with sin in our hearts, with a sin nature already residing in us. We're born as sinners before we ever even sin. And by the way, don't be offended by receiving Adam's sin imputed to you. Don't stand up and say, hey, I want a a blank slate. I want a clean slate. Because the reality is all of us would have done what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? So just because it's imputed to us doesn't mean that we would have done any different if we had been in his shoes at the beginning. So in order for propitiation to happen, number one, imputation has to occur. We have to be credited with sin and declared guilty because of it. And that's what's happened to us biblically. Because we are born as humans in this world, we have a sin nature. Secondly, you need substitution. If you're going to have propitiation, you need first imputation, then secondly, you need substitution. You need substitution. Jonah substitutes himself in the place of the sailors. Kill me instead of killing you. Jesus says, I'll take your death so that you don't have to die. This is the whole point of the Passover lamb uh, in the Old Testament. You remember the uh, Passover lamb, the firstborn son's going to die. So instead of the firstborn son dying, let's kill the lamb, put its blood on the doorposts of our house so that the angel of death sees something has already died. You don't need to kill anything because something already died in that, that person's place. This is the scapegoat. You remember in Leviticus, there was a scapegoat. The people of Israel would gather together. The high priest would put his hand on uh, the, the scapegoat and say, uh, you need to leave. You need to go out of our midst and go out to be eaten by some you know, wolf or bear or something. Go out from our midst. It takes our punishment. This is the entire sacrificial system. The point of something else dying in our place is to show us we need a substitute or else we ourselves will die. That's why John the Baptist says, behold, about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the substitute. We have sin imputed to us. Jesus is the substitute to come and to take our place and our penalty. Thirdly, in this recipe of propitiation, you need imputation, you need substitution. Then you need imputation again. You need imputation again. This is double imputation. You need imputation again. This is now the sailor sins, as it were, going to Jonah. So the sailor sins go to Jonah so that when Jonah's thrown over the, bo- over the boat, the storm's gone. There's no more uh, wrath of God over the boat. In a more specific way, Jesus really takes our sin upon himself. He becomes guilty in our place. This is something that I think we fail to think about. Absent of that double imputation. So we get the first imputation, Adam's sin is given to us, and then Jesus shows up and says, I will take your penalty. I'll take your punishment. I want to be your substitute. And usually we stop there when we reflect on the gospel. But absent of this third imputation, substitution cannot work. Just try it the next time you have a speeding ticket. Let's say you get a, let's say your, your son or daughter gets a speeding ticket. And you show up in court in their place. And the judge says to you, uh, are you the one who uh, got the speeding ticket? And you say, no, 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 it wasn't me. I'm not the one who sped. Uh, that was my son or my daughter. I'll just take their place. You can give me the fine. Is that going to hold up in court? I mean, that's a beautiful idea, but that's not going to hold up in court. I mean, just take it to criminal activity where somebody has uh, assaulted somebody else or murdered somebody else. 
You can't walk in, sit in their place and say, I'm not the one who actually committed the crime, but I'll pay for their crime. You can't be their substitute unless you have their guilt, unless you can say, I'm the one who did it. It's not going to work absent of that second imputation. Why wouldn't it work? Because the guilt of that person cannot be transferred to you. So therefore, though the punishment could be, the guilt cannot. And unless the guilt can be transferred, the punishment itself won't be. Let's think about Jesus. Remember when Satan tempted him to jump off the the temple? If Jesus had done that and he had died, would he have been our substitute in that point, in that moment? No. Would he have saved us in that dying? Remember the crowds wanted to take him off the cliffs of Nazareth and throw him off to his death. If he had died, would he have been our substitute? No. Because it wasn't just about dying. It was about taking our guilt and being punished in our place, bearing our guilt, bearing our sin, and being punished for it. This is, by the way, why the Bible, as we sung earlier, in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. This is why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam imputed, imputed sin to us. That's all he could give us. Poor Adam only has one thing to give us, and it's his record of sin. Sorry, everybody, you're sinful because of me. Jesus is the second Adam. He, he has something to impute to us, and it's perfect righteousness. Jesus' death only becomes effective when his righteousness is taken from him, given to us, and our sin is taken from us and given to him. So, we have three aspects of this recipe of propitiation. First, imputation, then substitution, then imputation again, and finally, number four, add a sacrifice, and you'll have propitiation. Add a sacrifice. Sacrifice, after all of these things have been met, now can work. It won't work before this. Remember, if guilt isn't imputed to that sacrifice, that sacrifice will die in vain. It will not work until guilt is given to that sacrifice. This is propitiation. This is exactly what happens in a narrative, illustrative way in Jonah. This is exactly what happens explicitly at the cross. Adam's sin is given to us. Jesus says, I want to bear your punishment. I want to be your substitute. Therefore, he takes our sin. It's imputed to him. And then he dies as a sacrifice in our place. Therefore, he and he alone is our propitiation. No one else can satisfy God's wrath. Because no one else has had those four aspects of the recipe of propitiation put into who they are and what they can do. But there's a big difference to just ending there with the sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself, but it didn't end there. That's why we sang so many songs of the gospel and of Jesus dying, but his death isn't the end. Jesus rose from the dead to validate God the Father saying about Jesus' sacrifice, yes, it, it is perfect propitiation. It is. The, the recipe's there. Imputation, substitution, imputation, sacrifice. It's perfect. It's paid once for all. And those who would trust in you are forgiven and free. This is the substitution that we desperately need. We even see this a little bit in verse 17. We see Jonah going into the, into the storm, into the sea. He's going to die, right? He's going to go into the sea to die. He ultimately doesn't die, but he's going to go in there to die. And Jesus actually died. And then Jesus didn't just die. He also descended. That's a huge aspect of the gospel. He descended into the realm of death. He was buried. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I have preached to you what was the first of utmost importance in anything that I'm preaching. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that Jesus was killed. He died on our behalf. And then he was buried and that he rose again. He was buried. It's important to know he was buried. And then he rose again three days later. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 17, which is that other aspect of the sign of Jonah that Jesus is going to die, he's going to descend into the belly of the earth, as it were, and then he's going to rise out of the earth. Jonah did the same thing through a great fish that Jesus is going to do through the miraculous work of his death and his resurrection. Some people have a problem with three days and three nights. They look at Jesus and they say, he wasn't in 
the earth for three days and three nights. It's an, it's an idiom. It's a Hebrew expression. It's a phrase. We use phrases like this all the time. You, you might say, man, I worked a full day. If you say I worked a full day, if we're going to take that literally, that means you worked every 24-hour period during that day. But we all know what that expression means. I worked a full day. That's nine to five, a, a full day's work. But it's a phrase that we use. We don't take literally. Same thing here. This is a phrase that we would use. This is an idiom that is describing as the Hebrews would. This is just, he's there for three days. He's there for three days. Jews also reckon uh, time differently than we do. They reckon it from sundown to sundown. So if you started hanging out with somebody on a Friday at 3 o'clock and then you left at Friday at 9 p.m., you've hung out for two days because the sun went down. So it split those two days. So don't get up in arms about the three days and three nights issue. The sign is so clearly there, a sign of Jonah substituting himself in place of the sailors, just like Jesus did for us, and Jonah dying in the water, descending, being swallowed up, and then spit out. So too, Jesus literally died. He was swallowed up by the earth. And then God, in his amazing providence and miraculous working, raised him from the dead. There is no other way to be saved but this. Turn from self-effort and trust in the work of Jesus to admit, I am a sinner. I have sin imputed to me and I've lived it out. I need a substitute. I need somebody else to save me. I need somebody else to save me because I can't save myself. So please, Jesus, save me. And I believe the reality of the gospel. Jesus has taken my guilt upon himself. He's taken my sin upon himself. He was made the one who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin on our behalf. He became guilty so that we could be forgiven and, and given his righteousness. He was sacrificed. I believe in imputation. I believe in substitution. I believe in imputation. And I believe in the sacrifice that Jesus gave himself for me. We said this at Easter the gospel is about a message about historical events. These events happened. Jesus actually died. There's so much extra biblical evidence that proves that Jesus died by being crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate and Caesar and um, Herod the Great, or uh, Herod uh, after the Great had died and he was born during the time of Herod the Great. All these different historical realities. So this is a, a message of historical, provable evidence. But more than that, it's a message about what those events achieved. It's not just believing that Jesus died. It's believing what his death achieved. And then it's not just believing what his death achieved. It's transferring those achievements to me. It's believing that those achievements are for me. That God didn't just make this possible for people, but he actually did this for me. And it's a message about the good things that are now true about us because those achievements have been applied to us and the blessings that we can live as sons and daughters of God himself. But finally, the gospel is a message about the glorious God himself as our final ultimate treasure. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross so that I don't have to go to hell. It's that Jesus died on a cross so that sin would be removed so that I can be reconciled to him and have a right relationship to him and be with him forevermore. I love him because he first loved me. So three realities of conversion that we see in this narrative. Number one, you must turn from self-effort if you're to be converted. Number two, you must trust in Jesus' substitution if you're to be converted. Or else you're going to trust in yourself. You're going to say, I can do it myself. But finally, number three, if you are converted, if you have truly been saved, the third reality of conversion is that you will tell your new faith to the world. You'll tell everybody about what God has done. This is verse 16. The men feared the Lord greatly. They they are saved by the substitutionary work of Jonah. And so they, they fear God. Remember, this isn't, God, I'm going to vow something so that you will save me. This is, God, you saved me, so I give you everything. They feared the Lord greatly. It's literally, they feared with fear. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. That's literally in Hebrew. They sacrificed a sacrifice. And they made vows. We saw that earlier. They vowed vows. This is a, a triple-double, if you will, in the Bible. This is the only place in the Old Testament where this happens. In the same verse, there are three pairs of these two expressions. They feared with fear, they vowed with, vowed, with vows, uh, and they offered sacrifices with sacrifices. 
they are not just trusting that God has saved them. They have gotten saved. That's the point of this verse. Something has miraculously and radically changed in their lives. They are saved. They're absolutely undone. It's interesting that it says they sacrificed to the Lord. Who knows what they sacrificed? Because remember, they got rid of all of their cargo. So maybe there's some poor little goat that they forgot to throw over the boat. Maybe they catch a seagull on their way back. I don't know what they use uh, to sacrifice something to the Lord. Maybe it's more of a Psalm 51, 17 style of a broken spirit and a contrite heart is the sacrifices that our God desires of us. But whatever it is, they, they are radical in how they have changed from pagan sailors to now those who trust, fear, and love Yahweh and now are serving him. They're going to go home. Maybe they sacrificed when they got home. They're going to vow vows on the boat. What are the vows going to include? God, I'm going to serve you because of what you've done for me. I'm going to do something now that you've done something for me. You've saved us. My life's not my own. It's been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm going to glorify you with it. <clears throat> Tell your new faith to the world. If you've truly been saved, you can't hold this in. You can't bottle this up. You can't say, well, I'm glad I'm saved, but I don't need to tell anybody about it. In fact, I would, I would honestly wonder if you are saved. These people can't help it. This is what baptism is, right? When somebody gets saved and they say, I want to proclaim what God has done in and through me and share it with the world and testify to his goodness. This is baptism. This is evangelism. This is discipleship. This is everything that we live for as believers because of what God has done for us. We cannot help but tell the world. We can't contain the excitement that we have in our hearts that God in his great mercy has saved us. So three realities of conversion. Turn from your self-reliance and your self-effort. Trust in Christ's work. Die to yourself. Lay down your oars. Cease striving. You're not strong enough to get out of this on your own. Descend. Lay down your old self to rest, to die. Let Jesus live in you. Rise to newness of life with Christ. Turn from self-reliance. Trust in Christ's work. And then if you've been saved, tell the world. Tell the world how God has had amazing grace upon you. What about you? Where do you stand before the Lord? Do you still trust in some form of self-effort to get you to heaven? Do you have assurance that you're going to go to heaven? If you do, what is your assurance based on? Why do you believe you're going to go to heaven? If it's anything other than because Jesus did all the work for me and that's it, I plead with you to, to rethink what's gone on in your heart. Have you truly turned from self-effort? Are you still trusting in some last vestige of, of your own ability to, to commend you to God? Would you turn today? I plead with you, turn today. Turn from all of your sin, turn from all of your self-effort, which is sinful, and trust in the substitutionary work of Jesus. Own up to the fact that we all are sinners. Adam's sin has been imputed to us, and we live that out. We all need a substitute because we can't save ourselves. Jesus is that substitute because he took our sin and our guilt upon himself at the cross and was punished in our place, bearing the death and the punishment that we deserve. And as our sacrifice, he bore that penalty away perfectly. But he didn't stay dead. He rose to newness of life to offer you forgiveness to offer you himself and a right relationship with God. If you don't know that you have that right relationship with God, I, I plead with you, get in contact with us. You can find on our website down at the very bottom a way to email us. We'd love to hear from you so that we can walk you through not only what the gospel is, but why God is so amazing, why he's worthy of our affection and adoration. We're not a, a religion. Christianity isn't a religion of things that we're going to do to get God happy with us. It's all about a relationship with the one who loves us and gave himself for us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to tell the world. This is a weird season that we're in. We can't tell the world the way that we probably normally would, but get creative. Email people even the link of this sermon. Email people and say, let's talk about this sermon after you listen to it. Um, talk to people about 
the gospel. Text them, email them, shoot them social media things. These are all things that I'm not even comfortable with, and I am supposed to be because I'm apparently on the younger side of life, and I should know these things, but I don't even get these things. But uh, all these technological ways that we can reach out to the world to share the love of God with the world around us. Tell the world. But also, specifically this morning, as we partake of communion, go back to the reality of being in that boat, not in a sea of water, but in a sea of our sin and the storm of God's wrath hanging over us, ready to break our ship apart. Remember when you thought you could get out of it on your own. You could get away from all of your mess. You could row away from all of your sinful depravity. And then at one point, God in his grace said, you can't do that. And you let your oars go. And there on the, on the deck of that ship, seeing there's no hope for me, you lay prostrate on the ground and you say, God, help me. There's no other hope for life but you. And instantly the storm is gone. And the sea that's filled with your sin is completely cleansed. And you are given a right relationship with the God of the universe. If you know that, that's why we partake of communion. To remind ourselves of the gospel. To remind ourselves of the grace of God. To remind ourselves of propitiation. To remind ourselves of turning from self-effort. We still have to do that. Even as believers, we keep reminding ourselves to turn from self-effort. So, remember Jonah had the same problem that we have he had a, a conviction that if he fully surrendered his will to God, God would not be fully committed to his greatest good and joy. But here's the ultimate proof that that's simply not true. A God who substitutes himself for us and suffers so that we may go free is a God that you can fully trust. Jonah mistrusted the goodness of God. He didn't know about the cross. We can give him that excuse. We know about the cross. What's our excuse to doubt his love for us? Would you pray with me? Father, as we prepare our hearts now to partake of communion in our small groups, we do so with joy. We do so knowing that you and your kindness have granted to us the greatest gifts that could ever be given the gift of Jesus Christ. And because you have given us Christ, you have given us everything along with him. And because we have everything with him, we have adoption, we have a place at your table, we are your friends, your family, and we have eternal life with you forevermore in your house, in your home, in paradise. God, help us to remember those things even as we partake of communion together. Even in this partaking, may we turn individually and collectively as a church from self-effort. May we trust yet again in your substitutionary work, relying upon you and on you alone for salvation. And God, may we be motivated, even as we're told by the Apostle Paul, we declare through the partaking of the Lord's Supper the death and resurrection of the, of the Lord and that he is coming again. May this be a reminder as we partake that we are to tell the world that you're coming again. God, we love you because you first loved us. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead. If you have your uh, little single-serve communion cup, go ahead and take the top out. And I know that many of you in small groups, I think this is going to be a great time to partake of communion together. I know we want to do it as a family, but even though we are all together here in, in the library, we can still do it together as the church in our small groups, which is just going to be a great intimate time um, where we get to gather together around the Lord's Supper. And so I know your leaders have prepared for you bread and, and juice to be able to partake. So why don't you take the bread now? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. What a beautiful symbol. He said, my body is broken for you. This is my body being broken for you. Our sin imputed to him as the substitute and the sacrifice.
Paul says, as often as we're going to do this, we want to remember him and we want to declare his death, his burial, his resurrection, and that he's coming again. All of that through this remembrance, this memorial. So would you partake with me with gratitude in your heart, with joy in your heart, and with thankfulness to God for all that he's done in Christ. Let's take. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. As he passed it around, he said, this is the cup, the new covenant, my blood that's poured out for the sins of many. I will be the ultimate sacrifice. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember Paul's words. As we take it, we remember his death, his burial, his resurrection, and we declare he's coming again. He died for us, but he did not stay dead. He has risen to newness of life, and he's coming again. Brothers and sisters, he's coming back. So please, Tell the world that message. And even now as we partake, remember the grace of God on your behalf and don't keep that inside. Tell that to the world around you with joy and with gratitude in heart. Let's remember our our Savior together as we partake. This time I'm going to ask Luke and Kelly to come up and to end our service with a song. We're going to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. And as we sing it, may it be a response to what we've just heard. As we hear these words, may we turn in our hearts from self-effort. May we trust in the substitutionary work of Jesus. And may we tell the world, even through this singing, of the grace of Jesus Christ.
Have a blessed Sunday, CBC. We'll see you again next week.